You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you are black or not black, that is okay. This week on the podcast, it is part two of the On Reason series, a book of philosophy by the late Professor Emmanuel Ezzi. Very challenging book. In part one, we discussed the first two parts of this book, which was introduction and varieties of rational experience so i'll go over those very briefly and then we're going to talk about the next two parts of the book which are ordinary historical reason and science culture and principles of rationality so just a quick review the introduction of this book establishes the ideas of course establishes the thesis and essentially the thesis is as he wants to prove a vernacular representation of rationality What is a vernacular representation of rationality? It means a diversified approach to rationality. That is, there is not one type of rationality or one type of reason. And vernacular refers to the fact that it's discussing everything that affects reason aside from biology. So that's basically the thesis of the book. And then to go about proving that in the first section of the book, so that's the introduction. Then in the first section of the book, As he runs through the different varieties of rational experience, we get induction, deduction, hermeneutics, phenomenology, empiricism, and I think I'm forgetting one. But you get the idea, and we are not going to run through all those again. Okay, so that's how he goes through and just presents those different types of reason and rationality right there, right? There's five different types. I think you can best sum up that first section by saying that as he's goal is to establish that there is more than one type of rationality. So before we get started on part two here, I just wanted to say that I'm not going to talk about every piece of this book because there's just too much and it's too dense, but I'll try to give a summary of what the book is going to attempt to prove in each section. So section two, which is called Ordinary Historical Reason, is going to try to use language to prove that We rely on a shared cultural experience to understand the world. And to achieve this aim, as he discusses Wittgenstein and language games and three modes of language, which are fact, like scientific fact, value, like moral judgments, and then thickness, which is like a hermeneutic, interpretive understanding of the world where you use culture and norms, societal norms, in order to understand what's going on. I like this idea. I think it's interesting for a couple of different reasons. Uh, First of all, it fits in with what, as he's saying, which is that there are many facets to rationality, right? That was the whole point of the first section where he presents all those different types of historical reason that you like, the induction, the deduction, etc. But just from a subjective level, I live in China and to understand the culture here, of course, you have fact judgments and you have moral judgments, excuse me, you have fact language and you have moral language. But you also have thick language, too, like you need to understand cultural norms, history, all of this stuff in order to really understand the culture here. And then the question that he poses in here is, can you ever really do that? So even if you do understand the culture, 
or you think you understand the culture, aren't you always viewing it from outside? And then, okay, let's say you, you're not. Let's say you actually are inside of the culture and you're understanding it from the inside. Well, wouldn't that then be a loss of objectivity? Like when you then return back to your original culture or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean physically, just mentally, are you still able to objectively, quote-unquote objectively, view that culture? Does that really exist? And how, how then can we say that anybody can have a thick understanding in the language sense of thick, a cultural understanding, an interpretive understanding of another culture's rationality or culture or language? So I thought that was an interesting idea. I just liked that. And yeah, that's kind of the kind of the thesis for this section. But there's a lot going on here. So I'm going to skip over the second heading of this section and jump right into conceptual diversity. So in this subsection, Ezzy talks a little bit about Derrida, a little bit about Heidegger, and a lot about Chomsky. And the upshot of this section, it's a very difficult section. In fact, I'm going to read a quote from this section that is just, uh, you know, almost indecipherable. But I believe the upshot here is that grammar, excuse me, language is natural. Chomsky says language is natural. Grammar is something that our brains graft onto language so that it makes sense. And then that, in turn, informs reason and rationality. Because there's not one language, that means that there's not one type of reason or rationality, or at least that's part of it. There's at least as many types of reason and rationality as there are languages. This is what he says later on. He says, But if the law of nature and of the world is not one, then concepts or representations of nature or world are bound to be as diverse as human worlds and languages. I believe that's the upshot of this very difficult section. Here is a passage that I highlighted because it was so difficult. It's kind of long, but I just want to read it. If you've read the book, then you'll know that this is a difficult section. If you haven't read the book, here's the kind of thing that's happening. Building on these Augustinian insights, a vernacular theory of the ordinary in reason must remain entirely historical. But methodologically, the theory of the vernacular must also presuppose a moderate skepticism towards claims to ultimate epistemic foundations and must therefore substantively cultivate abstemiousness in regard to the dogmatic aspects of Augustine's metaphysical claims. Ours must be a vernacular theory of rationality which is neither relativistic nor radically skeptical. The designation radical is equally employed to mark relativism, where relativism becomes so corrosive that it undermines all grounds for rational assent. Unlike radical relativism, ordinarily conceptual historical pluralism in its ordinary productive forms as the vernacular inexperience exercises a healthy skeptical relationship not only to all that is dogmatic in metaphysics, but also to radical subjectivism. Yeah, so just an insanely hard passage, and I don't think one that's trying to be hard for hardness's sake. I think it's actually trying to say something. I'm not going to try to decipher it uh, here on the podcast. That'll take way too long to unpack everything that's there, but just an example of the kind of dense thought that's going into a lot of this work. In the next subheading, no less difficult, it's called uh, Philosophy in Postcolonial Vernacular. The most interesting concept here is something called disquotationality, which is basically the idea that anything can be stated as long as it can be backed up. Not necessarily with facts, but with some kind of, some kind of proof. 
something like that. That's something like the idea of what this means. And then as he is, expands on it and says, Disquotationality can also be seen to have a direct relation not only to the vernacularly linguistic, but also to a transformational theory of language. And this transformational theory of language is basically that we take things with an implicit meaning and then we transform them with language into having a more explicit meaning. And he likens this kind of to jazz improvisation and other things like that where you are getting an input and the thing you're outputting is more to the point. And I think he actually uses that exact phrasing more to the point. Or no, excuse me, he uses the phrasing what one had in mind. And this this kind of gets back to what Fred Moden was talking about, about a gap and how we paper over a gap when we're expressing something. And there he was talking about the black aesthetic. So that's kind of different. But also something that Ezzy brought up in this opening section where he quoted Virginia Woolf and he said that fiction writing is carrying the mind across the chasm which divides the two without spilling a single drop of belief. It's a very interesting quote and that kind of gets at the idea here of what disquotationality is supposed to be doing, it's supposed to be papering over this gap, and the way you paper over it is by taking an input and giving an output which goes from an implicit meaning to an explicit meaning. That was an interesting idea. I don't think I'm exactly hitting it on the head, but then it's not a it's not a very simple concept and certainly not something that can be covered in a page or two. It's just brought up here to strengthen Ezzy's argument which maybe is best summed up by what is said at the very end of the chapter. As he says, the invention or investment of the new in reason to an objective world is meaning making. So to make a meaning is also to make a world. So this would tie together the idea of what you're doing with fiction and what you're doing with language, which is that you are bringing meaning into the world and by bringing meaning into the world, you're creating a new world. By creating a new world, you're creating a new form of reason and or rationality. I think that at least gets to most of the point there. For the last two subsections, I'll be brief. The second to last subsection is called the social construction of things, which kind of comes out of the last, the subsection just before it, naturally, because he's talking about bringing things into meaning by talking about them. Anytime you think about something and then turn it into language, you are creating a new world. And that's a nice idea, but then basically as he's like, okay, sure, but what do we actually mean? I mean, like, am I saying that this cup in front of me is only here because I just said the word cup? You know, is it Schrodinger's cup? And then he goes through a whole example of, like, a coin is a piece of copper. It becomes a coin when we assign it meaning. A human is a human. It becomes, you know, a construction worker when we assign meaning to it. He goes through this whole thing, but really to sum it up, the best way is... To just quote directly from the book is not always the best way. He says, classical metaphysics used to be about what is explaining the thing without reference to its interested perception, but the desire of modern epistemology is to gain a pure perception of the state of nature of the pure state of the thing. When we say we're bringing meaning into the world, we can focus less on what the actual thing is here. That's not quite the thing that he's talking about. He's talking more about like, what is the thing that is doing the thought? But anyway, whatever, it still works. 
we've we've moved away from that idea and more into just what is the pure perception of the state of nature of the pure state of the thing which in this case is not really the thing that you are thinking about but the thing that is thinking and then the very last section the very last subsection is called reason and history and really the the coolest thing about this section is the reference to the Ethiopian philosopher Zira Yalkab, who I'd never heard of, and so it only took me 36 years to hear of this person, Zira Yalkab, and he wrote a work of philosophy called the Hatata, which is very hard to find, even, you know, usually when you, when something is 400 years old, it's like for free on, you know, Amazon or Project Gutenberg or somewhere on the internet free and not that you had to steal it. This is not really anywhere on the internet. I mean, there's translations, but also you couldn't buy a version of it. I thought that I would just be able to buy a version of it. Like, Sayings of the Desert Fathers, I remember I bought a version of that on Kindle eight years ago about the Coptic Christians in the desert who were basically meditating on existence and Christianity and living a very monastic life in, like, desert caves. But this uh, Zira Yalkab fellow, who gets compared to Descartes, uh, he's very hard to find even books on. So, awesome that Ezzy turned me on to him, and now I'll have to hunt him down somewhere. So, he was brought up because he was demonstrating the idea of a diverse type of rationality. He had studied with the Coptic Christians and he had also been informed by his own culture and then he went away by himself on kind of a monastic journey where he's meditating on all that he knows and then coming up with his own theory of reason and so as he brought him up and yeah I, th I just thought it was interesting so I'll have to read more find his book something but maybe I'll just read the online translations but I would like to actually have a physical book in my hand if I could That'd be a cool one to have. On to the third chapter. It is called Science, Culture, and Principles of Rationality. I think the goal here is to de-establish the link between biology and rationality and also to further establish that culture shapes rationality. So if we go back just really quick, really quick, the introduction establishes the idea of a vernacular rationality. Boom. The second section introduces all of these accepted forms of reason that we've come to identify and study throughout the ages. Bam. Right, we got a boom and a bam. The section we just talked about goes through language and how language is a diverse thing that informs our, literally, is conceptual diversity, how language and grammar are naturally occurring, how they create meaning in the world and how we use them to create meaning in the world etc etc and then this section is going to further talk about how culture shapes our rationality and then kind of get away from the idea that biology shapes our rationality so there's a bunch of different ways he talks about this and they're all kind of interesting i would say probably the common through line is race but maybe that's unfair but a little bit. But so in the first section, what he does is he talks about how there's a female philosopher, and it's the first female philosopher he mentions in this book. He talks about how she wanted to come up with a an anthology of women philosophers, and she realized, like, well, there's not, I don't have anything tying these people together. The philosopher's name is 
Cheshire Calhoun. Really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Cheshire Calhoun, and she wanted to come up with this anthology about philosophers, and then she realized there wasn't like a through line, but then she was struggling because there did seem to be something that did tie them together. And what was this unifying principle aside from womanhood, unless there was some kind of kinship? So eventually he, he uses this female philosopher, Cheshire Calhoun, to draw a comparison to African philosophers and black American philosophers. And this question of, well, what ties all this together? Is it just the fact that we're all women, we're all black, or we're all Africans, or something like that? And so he says, uh, if kinship does not mean unanimity, and difference does not equal accidentality, what is the enduring difference that gender and culture, geography, or race, any of these things, makes or should make in a wide range of topic, topics and problems of philosophy. And so that's kind of the jump-off point for this whole section here. It's like, what do, what do these things mean? What is kinship? Uh, I'm not going to be able to answer that question. I don't know if Ezzy really answers that question, but he just brings up this idea, and it's a, it's a good idea. It's a good question and a good jump-off point here. Oh, one more note. As he's talking about this, he gets to a philosopher named Sandra Harding, who had noticed something in common with female philosophers and Africans, and I believe the piece she wrote was called The Peculiar Coincidences of African and Female or Feminine Philosophers. can't remember the exact title of the work, because it wasn't a book, it was an article, which I could not, I couldn't find. I couldn't hunt down for purchase. But just an interesting idea there, too. What, what do these two things have in common? I would have liked to have read that. Uh, I believe that's by Sandra Harding. So yeah, th those are two things I would like to read in the future. Zira Yaakob and, and Sandra Harding's uh, The Curious Coincidence. So then that, that, that was in the subsection Freedom of Science, and it's a good question. And then after that, we jump to Freedom of Culture. That's another subsection. I'm just going to skip that one altogether. And then jump instead to The Character of Freedom. First, I want to discuss just the part that I thought was interesting, and then I'll kind of talk about the part that ties this all together. The part that I thought was interesting is that as he goes through and he makes a point of distinguishing between freedom and liberty, and if you think about it, you wouldn't, I don't think on the surface, really think about that. I just think if you heard the two words, connotatively, you like definitely know there's a difference, but you wouldn't necessarily think about what the difference is. So anyway, he goes through freedom, and he talks about the etymology of it, and how, you know, you would have an apprenticeship when you were, you know, a young man hundreds of years ago. And then the freedom would be that once you finish the apprenticeship, you could go home. So there's this idea of home and belonging to freedom. That really makes a lot of sense, you know. if you if, So talking about it through the black American lens, if you think of freedom as just becoming a full citizen and belonging to a place, then it really makes sense, especially if you consider the journey of, Black people being not people, black people being, black Americans specifically, being three-fifths of people by the Constitution, then black people getting their full personhood in the 1960s, that would be, at least legally, that would be freedom. But then liberty, well liberty, if, if you think about the famous American phrase, it's life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it's kind of right there in that and that phrase, if you think about it, liberty is more like the autonomy of movement, the right to be able to achieve these things that are guaranteed to all Americans to go out and pursue your happiness. 
And this autonomy of movement, this ability to move around freely in a society is different than freedom itself in a society. If freedom is belonging, liberty is, maybe to use the, um, the Jay-Z quote, it's living it to the limit, right? Nine to five is how you survive. I'm not trying to survive. I'm trying to live it to the limit and love it alive, right, from reasonable doubt. So maybe that's the difference there. And whenever I watch a Western, and I watched a Western last night called Cimarron, which is terrible. But I always think of liberty in those movies because it's usually always some homesteader out there on the plains getting his land in his pursuit of happiness. In this case, it was the Oklahoma land run, which let's not even get into the genocide committed in order to clear the land of people. But, is, I mean, this is first after the Trail of Tears moved these people out to Oklahoma, the Native Americans, and that killed off a bunch of people, then also to take their land from them. Uh... 160 acres per person. 160 acres. And so, in the film, a Native American has ran off his land very early on. Excuse me, he's trying to be a homesteader, and he's ran off from being allowed to be a homesteader. And the the movie has zero black people in it. I've read a book about the Oklahoma Land Rush. I don't know how many black people actually were there when the state was founded, when the land rush happened, but... You can imagine that it wasn't many, or if it was many, let's say it was a good amount, and that's what eventually led to the Black Wall Street. Well, I think what's fresh in the memory of uh, everybody's minds from a couple years ago with uh, that Watchmen series that came on HBO is the Tulsa Massacre. I actually have a National Geographic issue right in front of me that's talking about it. All of this to say that that's where liberty is denied, right? That's how you deny liberty, when you have people firebombing neighborhoods, even if in those places those people are free and they've gained most of their personhood, they don't have the autonomy to go where they want, set up houses where they want, set up businesses where they want, or even set up businesses where they're allowed to set up businesses. They still don't have that kind of autonomy, still don't have that kind of liberty. So, yeah, anyway, uh, I thought that was a very interesting section. Well, how does this tie into what as he was talking about, because he wasn't talking about that exactly. Again, the difference between freedom and liberty is in this subsection, which is called the character of freedom. The character of freedom. Okay, so then at the end of this subsection, he relates this story where Granville Sharp, a founder of the British abolitionist movement, is talking to a African king. And the African king says that he, actually Sharp says that the king is less moved by stories of individual slaves and more moved by things he considers insults. And he asks him, well, why, why would that be the case? You know, is this just some unfilling thing? And he says, the king replies, if a man should try to kill me or should sell me and my family for slaves, he would do an injury to as many as he might kill or sell. But if anyone takes away the character of black people, that man injures black people all over the world. And when he has once taken away their character, there is nothing he may not do to black people ever after. That man, for instance, will beat black men and say, Oh, it is only a black man. Why should I not beat him? That man will make slaves of black people. For when he has taken away their character, he will say, Oh, they are only black people. Why should I not make them slaves? That is the reason why I cannot forgive the man who takes away the character of the people of my country. And then as he goes on to say, character, in the sense the monarch uses it, 
is not an individual attribute like, for example, wit. It is something shaped in community by culture. And so that's how all of that ties in together, how the freedom and liberty ties in together when you strip away character from people, which you would do when you strip away their freedom, then you are stripping away a essential part of their character. The second to last subsection is called the science of race. And here, as he just goes through all the ways in which race has been constructed, so the first thing he does is talk about Linnaeus, who was a, I think it was a Swedish anthropologist or something. Doesn't really matter what he did. He was an idiot, ultimately. But he's one of the people who helped come up with the idea of race. And uh, there's a lot of ridiculous quotes and stuff that this guy did, but here's here's just an example of how ridiculous his conceptions of humanity were. So he says, All races are related to an original stem, the four-footed hairy wild man, and all are sapiens, diurnal, and varying only by education and situation. So the scientific system of race must only label as deviant monstrosities the following atypical members of the species. The small, active, timid mountaineer, the large, indolent Patagonian, the less fertile Hottentot, the beardless American, the conic-headed Chinese, and the flat-headed Canadian. So that's uh, Carl von Linnaeus from A General System of Nature, as quoted by Ezzy in his book. And yeah, whatever. And, but basically, he was the guy who was like, oh, there's four races, and here's where they're from, and and whatever. And Ezzy goes through and makes a point of how America still, ha- you know, on our census, we still only have four four groups so it hasn't as much as it's changed it hasn't changed and this whole section is to point out how race doesn't make any sense and america is a really good example of this i remember i was watching the well not just the america united states of america but the americas but i remember i was watching the united states play nigeria in basketball and i was watching zach levine who's like me half black half white but much lighter than i am and he's playing against nigeria and i was like Right, so Zach Levine's black, and I'm black, and all those guys in Nigeria are black. We're all black, even though we look completely different. Now, there are plenty of people on the continent of Africa who look completely different, which Ezzy brings up too, but they're all black because it doesn't matter. All those different shades are all black. And then you go to Brazil where, you know, you have people like Neymar who's like, I'm not black. And so, and and Ezzy also brings up the idea of how in Brazil, you can have two parents of one race and a child who's a, of a different race. All of it to say that race is a construct, of course. He goes deep into the weeds of how much of a construct it is. And it's not that I don't think that that's a useful exercise. It's just that if you are in 2022 and you still don't understand that race is made up, then you're an idiot. So... I guess read this section because the thing too is like all of his sources in here are old. He wrote this book in whatever 2008. There's even more information on this stuff now. It doesn't even matter. But he goes to the whole idea of like diversity and what we mean by diversity on a gene level and how much diversity there is in Africa and how much diversity there is here and, and, and there is there and all of this different stuff. So you can go look into that in your own. I'm not going to convince you of it. If you're not convinced, I don't know what to tell you. But it does all raise the question of like, well, okay, if all of that's true, then then what does race mean? Because, hey, I definitely do identify as black, as the top of the show says. So what does that mean? Well, it means it exists because 
if I'm saying that I am that, then I've brought that meaning into the world to go back to a little idea from part two. So if I believe race exists, then it exists, and that's pretty much what it comes down to. That gets you into a whole question of whether or not we should believe these things exist. On a cultural level, I think it's valuable, but, you know, if it's going to create division, then it's not valuable. But that's a potentially different conversation for a, a, a different day. The point is, is that on some level, race does exist because we've deemed it exists and it does inform our thinking, but not on a biological level at all. So then what, how, and when does it inform our thinking? And that's an interesting idea. And again, this is not an idea that is just like, oh, well, we have to be specifically talking about black people in America for this to be a thing. You could think of it as white people in America. That's also not a race. Um, excuse me, that's not not like a, you know, it's not a race that's based off of anything in the same way that, you know, black people aren't based off anything. There's Europe, which has a bunch of different types of people, and then everybody moves over to America, and then they all become white Americans, and we'll, we'll even subsume, I think on our census it says uh, Hispanic non-white, you know, so if you are Hispanic but white, you could you could slide into that white bracket uh, eventually if, you, if you're lucky enough. Uh, so yeah, so you, so you don't have to just apply this to the idea that it's, you know, black race and therefore there's a meaning there. It's all of the meanings that we assign to any race and that are assigned to us from the outside, but also that we assign inside our groups as well. And culturally, the benefits and the hindrances that come from that. I read a book a couple years ago by Thomas Chatterton Williams, who I'm not a fan of, but I read a book of his, or two books of his, I, I didn't like either one. But, um, you know, he was talking about the absurdness of race, the absurdity of race, and how we should just become a, a raceless world, which I think, for reasons that Ezzy kind of points out in this book, are not, it's not feasible. One, in order to gain agency in a lot of the world, you have to unify and unifying around race, unfortunately, is something that we have to do because the discrimination was based off of race. Okay, that's one thing. But then, even if that, even if you put that aside, there is a culture that's been built around race now. Like, just the good aspects, okay? Not the negative aspects or the things you have to fight for, but just the good things that are purely not harmful in any way, shape, or form. That's something that, you know... I wouldn't want to throw away because it's, you know, quote-unquote divisive. I, I don't think that it has to be naturally divisive. The other thing, too, is that if you're just saying that having differences is going to cause divisiveness, well, then you never, then, then just getting rid of the concept of race isn't going to do it. You have to get rid of the concept of everything. Uh, everybody will have to not have any religion or any race or any anything no different genders you have to have one gender um you have to have one sexuality i mean everybody is going to have to be completely homogenous for us to not be angry at somebody else for being different although we can acknowledge the problems of race we can also say that it has unified people sometimes in a really horrible way but just trying to concentrate on the positive here in a positive way and I wouldn't want to throw out all of the things that have come from that. And guess I guess I am now really talking about the black American experience because that's what Thomas Chatterton Williams was writing about. But let's get away from, from old TC Dubs, who, again, 
I don't like. But I do like Ezzy, and so, yeah, that's that pretty much sums up the end of this chapter. And then at the very end, there's one more subsection called The Ethics of the Universal, where Ezzy is talking about the idea of overlaying an entire ethical model, moral model, onto the world and saying this is how everybody should be. And then he discusses false uni- universalism and why it's a problem. And he also discusses multiculturalism and why it's a problem and monoculturalism and why it's a problem. So he goes through all, he's attacking everything here. Got to deconstruct everything to build it back up. But I guess the whole point is, is that, uh, I'm not guessing here. I, I believe the whole point is that there's more than one model of rationality. And so I think that section was actually pretty successful the science culture and principles of rationality section was pretty successful and relatively straightforward a little bit easier to digest than the second section which was ordinary historical reason where we're going through the linguistic turn and Wittgenstein and Chomsky and well so we have in there Heidegger and Derrida we're really getting a lot of weighty weighty stuff not that there's not hard things to sift through in the last section but like not not in the same way uh, i think that biological science is a lot easier to ingest than philosophy or theories of linguistics or analytical philosophy or anything that derrida ever said okay i think that's about it for this i, I think i got to everything i was really excited to read that linnaeus quote because i just think i mean if you, if you didn't know that the quote was based off of talking about the indigenous people of those places, it would just be really funny to make fun of bearded Americans, and, or excuse me, beardless Americans and flat-headed Canadians. I wish that this was a quote about like modern Americans and not indigenous Americans, because then it would just be a great quote. Um, it's unfortunate. But yeah, I, I did really want to read that. And then, yeah, the other the other quote that was just chock full of philosophical terms, uh, I read that. And, yeah, I wouldn't say that's indicative of the writing style here. Again, you know, when, when I read the Moton, that was the last nonfiction book we did, it really was jargony and annoying to get through. And this hasn't been the case with Ezzy. It's difficult because the things he's talking about are very dense and difficult and require a lot of reflection and reading but more less reading and more thinking. I, I felt like when I was reading the Moton, I was constantly having to go and cross-check and f- look at the footnotes, like had to look at the footnotes. With Ezzy, I can look at the footnotes, but he presents the cases well enough and the information he relays it well enough that I don't feel like I need to go back and look all the time. So, uh, three cheers for that on Ezzy's part. In two weeks, I will be back to wrap up this series. The next two sections are Languages of Time and Postcolonial Memory, and then Reason and Unreason in Politics. And yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how the whole thing wraps up. It doesn't it doesn't have a coda at the end, as far as I can tell. But it really feels like the kind of book which would have a coda, you know? Like it has an introduction, I feel like it should have a, a conclusion, a coda, a, a post postscript something but doesn't appear to have one so that's interesting but yeah so we'll wrap that up next week hopefully or excuse me in two weeks and hopefully um it won't be too too hard to get through but okay 
I'll see you in two weeks. Until then, stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.